Hey everybody, this is Karen Stefano, author of The Secret Games of Words, and I'm pleased to have with me today C.L.S. Ferguson, author of Soup Stories, a reconstructed memoir. How are you, C.L.S.? I'm doing great, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure, and before we begin in earnest, I have to tell you how much I enjoyed the book, and I I thought that the voice was so beautiful and throughout I found it kind of softly cadenced and but very sneaky. Uh, the, the stories, the, the vignettes snuck up on me over and over again and just to, to, to deliver a punch after punch to my heart. So I just wanted to say well done. That means a lot coming from you. I was reading The Secret Game of Words again the other day and I can say the same about your work because um, some of what you write in there it's so true and it's it's some of that stuff that like we don't really want to acknowledge about ourselves but we relate to because we've been there that opening piece mm -hmm. in the email oh my gosh it, if if your listeners haven't read your work I don't know why they haven't but they have to read it it's amazing. Oh, well, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate that. Um, well, let, let's, uh, let's get into it. And let's talk about your book. Um, tell us about it. Well, it's a coming of age memoir told in vignettes set at the soup plantation would be my like one liner about it. Um, it's, it's funny because, you know, you think the soup plantation, and I have a lot of mommy friends now, um, and I, I just have to tell them I would rate it like an R rating <laughs> because um, there are some themes discussed. It's got divorce and rape and drugs and alcohol and sex in it, so um, I guess it needs a trigger warning for um, some <laughs> people or at least a rating for some people. Um, but really, uh, all of those sort of obstacles – are really about getting out, getting at that main theme of finding the self and a place and a family and the growth that happens uh, amidst all that chaos. Well, would you be willing to read for us for a few minutes? Sure. So I'm going to read, I never went to that lacrosse game. Robert and I stood at the top of those stairs, the ones that led from the major street below, steeply up the hill to the soup plantation parking lot, the stairs where I had hidden to smoke during so many shift breaks, the stairs next to the empty restaurant where we hid alcohol to drink in the parking lot after our shifts, the stairs where I had slapped Tyler when he had spoken poorly about Robert, the stairs where Stephanie and I had cooked up our schemes. The stairs where the street lamp always turned the marine layer into magic. The stairs. Those stairs. It was March 12, 1999. It had been exactly 364 days since Robert and I had dined together for the first time after work. It was almost exactly a month until prom, about two months before Robert would graduate. He asked me to join him here. I assumed he would propose. Probably not marriage, but something. He would probably want to reveal plans for our year celebration the next day or ask me to prom or give me some kind of gift. The excitement was overwhelming. He was oddly distant. I thought it was just nerves. 
any moment now, I thought, he was finally going to tell me he loved me. Instead, he said, remember about four months ago when you told me you loved me? Yes, I was brimming with smiles and anticipation. You don't. He finished his thought harshly and abruptly. What? You never went to a single one of my lacrosse games. He stated those words firmly without emotion, as if presenting evidence to a jury. I did so, I retorted to the lacrosse team captain. Only an indoor game. I asked if it was important to you that I go. You said it didn't matter. You should have come anyhow. How am I supposed to read your mind? I was turning from hurt to angry pretty quickly. If you were involved in something, anything, I would support you. I'm in choir. You never go to those performances. I'm in musicals. You don't go to those either. You said you didn't need me to go. You said you know I hate those kinds of things. <laughs> you think I enjoy watching sports? Robert's eyes softened a little. He almost allowed me to see a tear well up. See, we're just not meant to be. Besides, I'm graduating soon. We don't live that close together now, and we'll be much farther apart after the end of the school year. We live between 10 and 20 minutes apart by car, depending on whether you're at your mom or your dad's. I realized I had missed the point, took a breath, and tried to start over. I mean, congratulations, which college accepted you? I'm taking a year or two off, traveling the country, opening new soup plantations. Are your parents upset? Doesn't matter. Anyway, none of this is the point. I think it's time to break up. There's nothing I can do to talk you out of it? No. May I have a hug? He shrugged in response to my request. I tried to tenderly pull him in for one last warm embrace. He kept his arms firmly at his sides. It felt like I was trying to hug a wooden board. I stepped back. He looked at me, looked away, walked away. Oddly, I felt no tears. Not even a lump in my throat, just cold, just numb. That magic fog suddenly transformed into pea soup humidity, and I stood there just long enough to regain temporary composure, then march back in to finish my shift. Thank you, CLS. I'm, I'm sorry to say that I can relate to this story because I've tried to hug a wooden board before, and uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's about the worst feeling in the world. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, really, I really like that vignette. Thank what you. I read blurb? that to my. Oh, I'm sorry. I read that to my best yep. friend, and she said, "I just want to walk up to that girl and hug her and tell her she deserves <laughs> so much more." And I said, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> it, it, it's funny how it takes us quite a few years to figure that out, though, isn't it? I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us have to uh, learn the hard way over and over and over again. Over but, and over. Uh, yeah. We but we get it eventually or not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of your blurbs uh, and, and you in giving a description of the book um, aptly describes soup stories as a memoir in vignettes. And I was curious and hoping you could tell, tell us a little bit about why you chose that structure or form for the book. Well, it's interesting because I didn't set out to write a memoir. Um, in fact, the first story that was written that is a part of the collection was Squint Test, which doesn't even happen inside the soup plantation. And that was way back the year I met my now husband, boyfriend at the time, Rich Ferguson. And we were sitting at um, 
this little French cafe in Hillcrest um, in the San Diego area. And I was telling him this story and he said, you know, you should really write that down. That sounds like a poem. And um, over the course of time, I did end up writing it down and he took a look at it and I ended up sending it out. And um, I had no idea that would be a part of any larger collection, but along the way, you know, he would tell me about what he was writing about and we'd just share stories back and forth like you do with your romantic partner or friends or whatever. And I would tell him these funny stories about what happened to me at the soup plantation that turned into the first time I got high, Buenissima, Conundrum, One Summer the Dishers Got Deported, all of those kind of funny, more lighthearted pieces that happened inside of the soup plantation. And he said, you have to start writing these down because I think you have a collection. Well, I ended up writing them down, and when I had 65 of them, I contacted Ashley Perez and asked her if she would be willing to take a look and see if she thought I had a collection. And she did this brilliant job of writing this um, response to me that um, kind of suggested, yes, I think you might have like an overarching narrative and I think you might have this and that, but you're missing some stuff. And she encouraged me actually to uh, include some things that happened in the same time period, but were not... Um, actually inside of the soup plantation. And that's how I ended up including squint test and other pieces outside of the soup plantation. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to present it as a memoir, which it is, or as fiction or what, but um, I thought it really is a memoir. I changed everybody's name but mine. Uh, I think that's the mm -hmm. academic researcher in me. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and everything's not absolutely true, like, written as a journalist, but it is basically what I lived through as a soup plantation employee. So basically the, the vignettes happened and then we decided it was a memoir. Well, um, God bless Rich and God bless <laughs> Ashley uh, yeah. for, for giving you the encouragement to put, put, put this down into a book because yes, there, there it's, it's the form of vignettes, but I definitely, uh, feel the the arc to to the story. So it it's 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 a unique structure and it's beautifully done. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to write them, and I think the other part of that is that whenever I write, I'm not sure if it's poetry or prose or poetry or what. And some of the pieces are clearly poetry form and some of them are clearly prose form and some are somewhere in between. So it kind of had to be a part of a bigger narrative. Otherwise I'd have to, you know, split up into different, you know, you either have to do it by theme or by writing type, I, I think. Yeah. That brings me to my next question for, for you. You are an artist uh, who spans uh, a lot of genres. Uh, you've made films, and I think you're you're a poet as as well. And then you've published short stories. What what forms and genres do you feel most comfortable with? 
That is an excellent question. Um, I think that there's some truth to jack of all trades, master of none kind of idea <laughs> that I've yeah. I've sort of tried on all of these different hats and I'm still finding my lane, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. But there seems to be sort of like a common theme or argument <laughs> to um, to all of the the work that I do. So it's interesting because um, I used to take an acting class with Mark McPherson over in Hollywood, and um, he was all about not limiting, you know, what way or form you you have your expression in, but to find your lane or your casting or who you are as an artist. And um, I think that as long as I'm able to express sort of who I am and um, uh, the way in which I like to reach an audience and make that connection, I think I'm willing to go through any, you know, not any medium. I'm, I'm not a sculptor. I will say that, but um, through multiple performance mediums, and I would see writing or filmmaking or public speaking or acting all as sort of performance modes. So I know that doesn't really quite answer the question, but I guess I'm most comfortable when I feel I'm being genuine to who I am and making a connection with the audience. Yeah, no, that, that absolutely answers my question. I wanted to move on and uh, talk about a couple of the blurbs that that you were given. Uh, David Rockland, author of The Night Language, gave Mm -hmm. you a blurb that literally gave me the shivers. And I I won't read the the whole thing, but I'll just just read the the ending part that, that, that really hit me. He writes, love, sex, drugs, loss, all sprout like flowers growing through the salad bar sneeze guard. The reader comes away with the unmistakable sense that hiding behind the vacant eyes of all the servers in middle American strip mall eateries are poets, writers, artists, dreaming of doing what C.L.S. Ferguson has done with this book. Make the simple stuff of living into words meant to be remembered. I just thought that was that was so beautiful. And I wanted to know, do you ever now in your present day life look at servers or cashiers while you're eating out and and ask yourself, what's going through this person's head? What what are this person's hopes? What are these this person's fears? What what kind of life do they have outside the four walls of this restaurant? Oh, absolutely. Um, Before I fully answer that question, I just have to mention what an honor to get a blurb from David Rocklin. And, you know, it's probably a little risk to put his blurb in the book because it's written so well. It's like, well, I don't know (laughs) if I need to read the collection now. (laughs) I know, um, I know. But I, I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. And I think that a lot of people do that, right? Like we encounter these folks who are working um, on the front lines of, you know, food service and retail and things like that. And I mean, it would be easy to just not notice them, but I think those of us who are writers and artists and making connections with other human beings, we can't help but see something in these people. So, 
I, I think the good thing about most people starting in that kind of a job means that you have some level of empathy for people uh-huh. who are, you know, dealing with the public. Um, but more than, you know, when I'm, when I'm at a restaurant or in a store and I see somebody acting in some way that's noticeable, either giving great customer service or awful customer service, those are the two I notice the most. I, mm-hmm. I start to sort of put myself in their shoes, and sometimes they become a character in either a poem or a story at some point. Um, but especially if the service is really, really bad, I think that my experience makes me go, you know, there's something happening in this person's life probably because most people aren't just jerks. Some people are sure, but most people, if they're being really rude to you and you haven't done anything to provoke it, there's something going on in their life. And I just think, well, maybe the toilet's overflowing in the back. Maybe <laughs> their their review didn't go well and they didn't get that raise they needed or whatever. But um I think even more than in that setting, I see this in my students because I'm a faculty member at a community college, which is where I started as well as a student. And I remember going into my first semester of college thinking I was just going to be a soup plantation manager the rest of my life, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think that was really my calling. And um, it's interesting I have a piece in the collection about how one of my um, managers like my first manager that I had this big crush on who I call Lance in the uh, collection he wanted to be an English professor and one of his English professors actually told him you know to give up that dream and so wow I had talked to this manager and said hey do you think I could be a general manager of a soup plantation he goes Sure, like in a few years, you could totally rock it, but, you know, don't become disillusioned with the rest of your life. I became disillusioned. That's why I'm here. And um, that was an interesting moment because at the time I thought, he's so wrong. I'm totally going to be a general manager. But um, I, I, my first semester of college, I took my first public speaking class, and my professor, Dr. Mark Newman, inspired me to join the speech team and I went on to get a master's and a PhD in communication, which I never would have dreamed I would do. Um, And I just think when I'm in my classroom, that's my job, not to recruit everyone for my major, but to enable possibilities students haven't imagined before. So I just look at that sea of students and at a community college, they range from like 17 to 77, depending on my uh, class. They can be any age, um, all these different stages of life. But to help them, I mean, we're doing it through communication specifically, but help them to see that no matter what path they choose, they could do more than they think they can. And that's a really exciting thing. And I I can relate to them more because I'm like, no, I really did, you know, think that soup plantation was the end of the line at one point. So um, that's where I... I think I see it the most is through my students. Wow. That's, that's such a beautiful point of view. And I feel like your students are really fortunate that your, that your point of view is that your job, you know, beyond, beyond the 
the, the text and the mm-hmm. curriculum is mm-hmm. to enable possibilities. That's a beautiful, beautiful approach. And yeah, I, I'm sure that you have, you see the humanity in servers and cashiers in your students, mm-hmm. largely based upon your own uh, difficult experiences growing up, coming of age. Yeah. And occasionally, you know, when you're eating, you'll see like two servers kind of flirt with each other or something. And that spins a whole, a whole story in itself as well. So it's fun to see beyond just what's right in front of your face. But I, I, that's what we have to do as writers. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and, I would say 99.99% of the people who listen to this podcast are writers. And so I, I bet that everyone who's listening says, yeah, of course they do that all the time. Everybody walking down the street, I just imagine what's their, what's that person's deal? What's their life like? And, and uh, sometimes it's just chatter in our, in our heads. And sometimes it comes out on the page in, in, in the form of, in the form of art. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, CLS, about mm-hmm. uh, one vignette in particular. It's the one titled, How I Lost My Identity to the Soup Plantation. Mm-hmm. And in that vignette, you, you use a list as the structure, which I mm-hmm. absolutely love, by the way. And among that list, you write, I chose to work on my birthday multiple years. And it, 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 it says so much about you that you made mm-hmm. that choice. And I wanted to ask you, why, why did you make that choice? Well, it's interesting. The soup plantation came along at a really good time for me. I was, um, I guess my parents had been in the middle of this ugly divorce for three years. Um, I was recently a sexual assault survivor. I had to change schools, churches, move for the first time in my life. I mean, everything in my life was in flux. And the first 13 years of my life, everything, nothing changed. Like same church, family was all there. Everything was perfect. Like there wasn't a white picket fence on our property, but other than that, we were so leave it to beaver. So, um, So everything was chaos and I applied for this job and suddenly I was valued because I was good at doing this job. And every time I walked into the soup plantation, it was the same. So I knew the salad buffet was going to be the same. The um, people working their positions were going to be the same. The managers were going to be the same. Even the little changes like were so slight. So um, I, found that this was like my family and my stability at this chaotic time in my life. And really after the soup plantation, I sort of traded that in for forensics, meaning intercollegiate speech and debate competition. I traded it in for graduate school. I traded it in so on and so forth um, until I made my own family when I met Rich and we got married and we adopted a baby and, you know, now I feel most at home at home, which is probably ideal. And for our daughter, that's what we want for her. I hope that 
she'd rather be maybe not with us on our 16th on her 16th birthday but that she'd rather be with friends or family or doing something fun rather than working on her birthday um but at the time it was stable and it was reliable and you know it felt like home and it felt like family more than anything else that's that's interesting uh, that that isn't the explanation that I expected to hear. And I think I'm probably just, I'm probably projecting and reading that uh-huh. story because I think I glommed onto that detail because uh-huh. when I was younger, I, I did the same thing, but for very different reasons. And uh-huh. I had expected your reason to be the same as mine, which was well, what's your it's reason? just, well, it's just, it was, it was just easier. It okay. was, it was a way to hide, uh, a way to prevent feeling disappointed when there wasn't, when I didn't really have people in my life who I expected to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's so it's interesting that you did it for the stability when you didn't have stability in your life, and I, well, I and mean, I did is- it this is me in my thirties looking back on it and, and sort of thinking that's the reason if you'd asked me then, I don't know if I would have said something different. Um, you know, so I, I think your explanation, I, I kind of see that as a part of, absolutely. It was a way to manage expectations for sure. Yeah. But I think in reflection, um, as an adult person looking back at my teenage self, it's it was like a family instability. So I don't know if I could have articulated mm-hmm. it like that at the time, especially since you mentioned your answer. Maybe that's a little closer to what I would have said at the time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting to try to go back and, and dissect our, our younger selves with the yes with the benefit of hindsight and hopefully a little bit of, a little bit of maturity. Now you, you mentioned your family and I know that you're a relatively new mother and congratulations. I've seen photos of Evelyn and she's a doll. And I just, you know, and I hope this doesn't come across as sexist because I would, I would ask this of a new father as well, but has, has motherhood changed your worldview at all? And has it changed you as a person or as a writer? How how has Mm. it changed you? Well, you know, my mom, my whole life said that motherhood was the best thing that ever happened to her, that, you know, even as bad as the divorce was from my father, she'd do it over again multiple times to, have my sister and I and um you know and uh my sister and I were both adopted as well so i my whole life i was um looking forward to motherhood and um looking forward to adopting and um that was really important to me so i had a a high expectation that motherhood was going to be this great thing and it has been um i think that in a way it's what I expected, but in another way, the depth to which I care about this little human being is so mm-hmm. indescribable. Sometimes I look at her and I get choked up and I start to cry and 
It's oh, wow. not because anything bad is happening. I just, I'm overwhelmed with how important this person is. And the, I think what I didn't expect or didn't reflect on beforehand was how much more I value myself now. Um, mm. I used to never really be afraid that something would happen to me, right? Like I have, I have a faith and a, a belief system and I, you know, I naively think I know what's going to happen when I die. And I, um, you know, I'm, I'm not really scared about that kind of thing, but now I'm so scared of that kind of thing. If something happens to me, that means this little person loses her mother. So I (laughs) suddenly, and this was what I didn't expect. I value my own health and my own life so much more. I used to be so fatalist, like, oh, well, you know, when I die, that's just the next phase of life. Now it's like, oh, no, I need to stay alive until this little person is old enough to handle the loss of her mother. <laughs> it's wow. Wow. That's responsibility. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So I'd say that's a change in worldview. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that has been a change. And um, I think I knew that she would be my priority. I knew that it would change what I think about things. But, you know, I was sitting in a department meeting the other day. I'm so grateful to have the job and the career I have. I mean, I get, you know, I get summers off and I can work as few as three days a week as long as they're really long killer days. Um, so it, it makes it easier to spend more time with my baby. Um, but I used to get so like involved and upset about the way I think things should be. And it's funny because I don't know that my opinions have changed necessarily about the way things should be in my department. But now I realize, eh, maybe that doesn't matter that much. <laughs> like, maybe well, that's, it doesn't that's, matter. A, that's a great change. Yeah, yeah that's a so great change in perspective. It is a great yeah. change. And I didn't realize how uppity and, like, uptight I was about certain things until I sat through a de- department meeting and went, I don't think I've complained about one thing this whole meeting. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Beautiful thing that you can thank Evelyn for yes, that yes. to make you sit back and say, you know, this really doesn't matter a little bit, so I'm not going to even worry about it. So that's a yeah. that's a beautiful thing. So mm-hmm. let me shift gears entirely, and we're yeah. running out of time. And so this will okay. this will be my last question for you. Mm-hmm. But okay. uh, you're talking about your job as a mm-hmm. communication professor, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that. One piece of your curriculum is, I'm, I'm assuming, is the power of words, and not just the power of words, but the power of word choice. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if maybe you could share with us one or maybe two of your favorite lessons in this regard. Word, ah, word choice, yes. So um, words can empower and disempower at the same time. And I find it interesting that um, now the identity politics are becoming so big and um, we need to choose our words more carefully because what we call people can have an absolute impact on sort of their reality. So when 
I read this question in advance. I thought you meant the power of the word choice rather than word choice. Oh, um, interesting. <laughs> so what I was thinking about was in terms of my um, collection and what I learned about choices is that um, every time we make a choice in life, uh, we're actually narrowing the choices that we have uh, because we are sort of choosing against these other options. Um, so uh, in my collection specifically, even before our brains have finished, we're making choices that can have lasting impacts. So mm-hmm. um, I already kind of talked about how I wanted to um, expand the choices for my students. But I did want to tell you what book I wanted the president to read. Oh, tell me. Uh, tell me. Okay. So um, you s- took this question from the New York Times about what pr- what book we would want President Trump to read. So um, this might be politically different than what some people would expect from a writer. But I would want President Trump to read, and all pro-life um, uh, politicians actually to read the case for life by Scott Klusendorf, and this book is um, it's a pro-life book, and it gives a really great uh, read of many pro-choice advocates like Camille Paglia, uh, Naomi Wolf, David Boonin, Michael Tooley, a lot of big heavy hitters with a lot of really extensive philosophical reasons for supporting the right to an abortion. And then it gives a secular argument in favor of the pro-life stance, um, as well as a Christian perspective. And the reason I'd want them to read it is because we have a lot of politicians who purport to be pro-life, and yet they make really stupid arguments and belittle women. And this is uh, the best book I've seen on the pro-life case that actually makes intelligent uh, remarks and uh, gives credence to the other side as well, because I think the abortion debate is an ugly one in American culture and one where both sides need to actually listen to each other and engage each other. So I'd encourage him to read that book, though I don't think he will. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think he will either. And that's uh, you won't read any of the books recommended by any of my guests on on this podcast uh, this year, virtually every podcast this year, not all of them, but most most of them, I've asked my guests that question. And again, uh, uh, stolen from the Sunday New York Times book review interviews. And it, And I always say that it's a question that I didn't think was that that relevant. Uh, then last November happened, and it seemed very, very relevant to me. And it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating. And I'll I'll put a post up on Facebook and Twitter at the end of the year summarizing what each guest has suggested because it's mm-hmm. it's so fascinating the the broad spectrum of of uh, suggestions made by by these writers and uh, they're, they're all excellent suggestions and yeah, they're none, none of them are going to be read by that guy, but what, whatever, uh, it's still, it's still an engaging topic to, 
delve into. And so with that, CLS, uh, we're out of time. And I just want to say thank you for writing Soup Stories, a reconstructed memoir. I think the book is going to do great. It's a beautiful, beautiful narrative. And the, the vignettes structure is is unique and beautiful and executed so well. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much. 